Charles Darwin's theory of natural selection states that the traits passed on are those with positive attributes for their environment. So what was Hollywood thinking when they adapted Slaughterhouse-Five? Welcome to Unnatural Selection, a podcast about the film adaptations of books, the weird decisions Hollywood makes in the process, and what makes an adaptation good, faithful, and less commonly, good and faithful. As always, I am your host, Emma. I use any pronouns, and today I have with me Oak. Oak, would you like to introduce yourself? Hey, I'm Oak. I use uh, he, him, or plural they, them pronouns. I'm the uh, editor and occasional co-host of the Three Little Words podcast. Uh... That, that I, I think that covers it. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, and today we are talking about Slaughterhouse-Five, the Kurt Vonnegut novel, and the 1972 film adaptation of the same name that I didn't actually know exists, despite the fact that I've read Slaughterhouse-Five like four times. Yeah, I was mostly surprised to find out that it came out so close to the release of the book. I, I always thought that it was like in the 80s or something but no 72 yeah it was like right there and apparently even though it like totally flopped in theaters it was Vonnegut's favorite of like the film adaptations of his works yeah I mean I've heard Breakfast of Champions is an absolutely terrible adaptation <laughs> I believe but... it I don't think I have seen any other film adaptations of his stuff I've seen stage adaptations um because mm. he Welcome wrote sta- to the... uh, stage plays too yeah, and like Welcome to the Monkey House, his short stories are mm-hmm. done as like a series of one act plays. Hmm. But yeah, let's get into it. Uh, the way we kick this off is I will read comparative synopses. So okay. one of the book and one of the movie. We'll see. We'll see if they line up with each other at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the synopsis for the book is here we go. Slaughterhouse-Five, or The Children's Crusade, A Duty Dance with Death, is a 1969 semi-autobiographic science fiction-infused anti-war novel by Kurt Vonnegut. It follows the life and experiences of Billy Pilgrim, from his early years to his time as an American soldier and chaplain's assistant during World War II, to the post-war years, with Billy occasionally traveling through time. The text centers on Billy's capture by the German army and his survival with the Allied fire- of the Allied firebombing of Dresden, as a prisoner of war, an experience which Vonnegut himself lived through as an American serviceman. The work has been called an example of unmatched moral clarity and one of the most enduring anti-war novels of all time. And then the synopsis for the movie Mm -hmm. is, From his home in Ilium, New York, optometrist Billy Pilgrim narrates the tale of how he came to be unstuck in time, kidnapped by aliens and living in comfort with his assigned mate, B-movie starlet Montana Wildhack, Billy experiences the events of his life in random order, flitting between his past as an American prisoner of war in World War II, to his humdrum middle-class life in the present day, to his future as a zoo curiosity on the planet Tralfamador. Let's get into it. Okay. (laughs) I'm trying to think where the best place to start is, because there are a lot of changes in this. It was an interesting one going in. Oh, Creature. Yeah, this is my cat. His name is Archer. Fantastic. Um... Because there are a lot of similarities, and it, it's hard to do 
a book that is jumping around through time. Yeah. When you when you told me like we're gonna do a synopsis of of the book or like the events of the book, I'm like, in in what order? <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you'd like us to give us a summary of the events in whatever level of here's what happened, you would like to. I also know it's a wild one, and it's you know for listeners who haven't read the book, one you should, uh, and two. Don't worry, it's not going to be any more in order when you read it. <laughs> so I will do my best to summarize them in the most like logical way possible. Because the book, despite being non-linear, is also fairly linear. Um, yeah. Like the, the World War II story is told from beginning to end in order more or less like with interruptions from other points in time. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Billy Pilgrim, the chaplain's assistant uh, in World War II, he is in the Battle of the Bulge, where he becomes, quote-unquote, unstuck in time. As mentioned, he jumps around various points in his life from birth to death at random, or seemingly at random. He is uh, then captured by the, uh, the German army and is a prisoner of war. He is initially shipped to a camp in a town that I don't remember. <laughs> it wasn't Dresden yet. Um, no, not yet. In his uh, prisoner group, uh, they elect high school teacher Edgar Derby to be the leader of their to be the leader and representative of their uh, POW selection. Edgar Derby, we're re- 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 we are repeatedly told throughout the book, is going to be uh, executed for theft after the firebombing of Dresden. So it goes. Over and over we are told this. So after like a single night in this one camp, they are eventually moved to Dresden, where they work for a couple of weeks doing menial labor. Hang on my... There we go. Cat jumped off the, the desk. Um... <laughs> Uh, and then one day, the Allies firebomb the city. Uh, a real event that actually happened, but the book actually grossly uh, overestimates the number of people who died, I, I feel I have to mention. Uh, it was... The the book repeatedly quotes, like, 169,000. I believe it's closer to, like, 30,000. Um, Okay, I thought the the book says I think it's one hundred and thirty five thousand is what yeah. it says. But I I I meant to Google it before we started this, and I forgot. So I'm glad you did. Yeah, because the um the number that Vonnegut quotes is from a specific book by an author who later turned out to be a Holocaust denier. Oh. Yeah. So Ooh. not not fantastic. Not um, great. Let me see. I don't know why it doesn't say. Oh, this is the book. Oh, okay. Yeah, from the book The Destruction of Dresden, 1963, by Hol- by British author and Holocaust denier David Irving. That is what Wikipedia directly says. <laughs> you you know it's bad when Wikipedia comes out swinging. Yeah, they open with it. <laughs> yep, instead of controversies. <laughs> God. Yeah, the actual numbers are between... Uh, about 23,000 up to like 35,000. 
okay. which is still a significant amount of loss of life, but it's not the almost quadruple statistic that, that the book repeatedly quotes. Yeah. That's um, interesting. Yeah. I wonder I wonder if that was like what was commonly thought at the time or whether he just read that one source mm. or whether he just wanted to like portray it as something bigger because there are a few details throughout the book that make it almost feel like it's happening in a parallel reality Mm -hmm. with the way he talks about history and will be like yeah this thing and then go into a detailed historical event that didn't actually happen like the first naughty photo oh yeah um i think i i feel like vonnegut genuinely believed this when he was writing it and i think um I think that was just the information he had access to, because I think the information was somewhat limited. Uh, so, I mean, Vonnegut being there himself, I'm I'm sure he saw, like, you know, 130,000, and he was like, yeah, that sounds right. Yeah, that makes sense. So anyway, the city is firebombed. Basically, the only survivors are Billy Pilgrim and his group that are staying in the titular slaughterhouse five in the in the basement as a basically a bomb shelter afterwards they are tasked with cleaning up all of the bodies and and sorting through things generally this is where edgar derby steals a teapot and is shot for looting and at this point in the book when it actually happens it is almost skipped over it is very unceremonious and uh then the Germans basically ditch all of them out of Dresden like a couple of weeks into doing this because Germany has more or less lost the war at this point. So Billy goes home. He gets married to the daughter of an ophthalmologist uh, and becomes an ophthalmologist himself. He enjoys a pretty damn successful career. He becomes a a very well-known person in his community, leader of the Elk Club or something, you know, something that old white men join. Um, And uh, everything is going well until he goes to uh, an ophthalmology convention with a bunch of other optometrists in a private plane, which ends up crashing. Billy is the only survivor and is rushed off to the hospital. Uh, meanwhile, his wife finds out about this, and, like, in in a, a frenzy, drives to the hospital in the most insane manner possible, and uh, crashes her car at one point, but continues driving, and uh, unknowingly just poisoning herself with carbon monoxide, and she dies in the, the hospital parking lot. So Billy gets out of the hospital. Oh, I should I should have mentioned that he was also briefly in the hospital during ophthalmology school for PTSD. Regardless. Um, he gets out of the hospital and uh, all of a sudden he's, he's very open about the fact that years ago he was, uh, er, he was, he was once abducted by these creatures known as Tropomodorians who are similar to him in the way that they view time. They can view all of time at once. They can view things in four dimensions. And 
Billy, Billy vibes with this. So he's abducted by these aliens and put into a zoo as an exhibit. Eventually they drop off a, uh, a mate for him. The actress turned porn star Montana Wildhack, who went missing at some point in, in, you know, the actual Earth timeline. Eventually they let him go. I think that's kind of left ambiguous as to when, when that happens in the book. But uh, Billy goes on to a radio show late at night to talk very openly about Charles Pomodoro and all that theory. Everyone around him, especially his daughter, says Billy has gone fucking nuts. Somebody needs to take care of him. And that's basically where our timeline ends, I guess. But in the future, we, Billy can actually see through to his death. Billy starts giving talks around the not-so-United States anymore. Uh, and sometime in the late 70s, he is assassinated at one of his speeches. Uh, he knows it's coming by an enemy that he made in the POW camp because one prisoner blamed his death entirely on Billy. Um, and this guy was like, oh, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna fucking get him. Um, that's, that's the story in short. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, yep. For best happens. listening experience, please, uh, take what I said and splice it together randomly. <laughs> yeah. Just do multiple editing cuts. <laughs> um, yeah. So I think, I think one of the biggest differences to like start with isn't just that it's like like the the movie takes these events and it, it doesn't do them in the same order that they happen in the book mm -hmm. and for the most part i think that still works yeah um but i think it's interesting when they change the timeline of some of them and when they happen in billy's timeline like when he gets abducted by Tralfamadorians happens right after his wife's death in the movie. Mm -hmm. Whereas in the book, it's like the night of his daughter's wedding. Yeah, which is and it's, pretty far after, I think. Or before? Yeah, I think it's pretty far before. And okay. I wonder if they just did that to make... I, I wonder if they were just worried that Billy would be less sympathetic if... He was cheating on his wife while he was abducted by aliens. Yeah, true. <laughs> like, genuinely, I think that's the only reason they would have made that change. Possibly. I do like that he gets to bring the dog with him, though. <laughs> In the movie. Yeah, I always forget when I watch the movie that they that they bring the dog with. Um, there, there's, like, a, a little bit of interesting focus on the dog in the movie. Yeah. The Which, dog is, like, mentioned a couple of times in the book pretty offhandedly, but he's, like, a big character in the movie. Yeah, it's it's very clear that, like, Billy loves the dog more than he loves his his wife and children. Mainly his children. Mm -hmm. He doesn't seem to, mm -hmm. to admire his children too much. Yeah, definitely not. I'm like, it's... I... I hit a point in this movie where he gets abducted, and I went, what do you mean? There's 19 minutes left of this movie. <laughs> what do you mean you're introducing Tralfamador now? 
Yeah, I also gotta say, I, I think it was kind of a cop-out that they just don't show the Tralfamadorians. It I think was... they should have gone for it. You know, the, the plunger bodies, the hands with the eye in the middle. They should have yes. gone for it. <laughs> Commit to your weird 70s special effects. <laughs> exactly. I think it could have been great, but they're cowards. Mm-hmm. And I think... I mean, this is like an overall thing that I want to get into later, but I think the movie almost gets the point mm-hmm. of the book, but doesn't in different ways and i think one of the ways is the trail famadorians like their whole deal is they already know everything that's happening all at once mm-hmm. like they got it they've not a care in the world so it really bugged me when they're in the zoo and they introduce montana and the trail famadorians immediately start asking are you mating is this you mating and it's like no you know everything yeah <laughs> you know when that's going to happen yeah it it uh it's a good joke, but uh, it doesn't it doesn't quite work. Yeah. I will say, uh, are we saving like opinions on the movie till the end, or? No. I like this movie a lot. I think I also think it's a pretty faithful adaptation, despite the changes that it makes, because it it ends up having to make a lot of changes just for the sake of being a movie. Because in the book, Billy is an incredibly passive character. That is, like, one of his defining features is that he just lets things happen to him because he knows and or feels he can't change anything. So everything just happens to him. He does nothing. He just walks through life pretty numb. Yep. Um, whereas in the movie, Billy's kind of not just an active character, but also kind of a lively one. Um, he's fun to watch. Yeah, the the actor who plays Billy is very charming. I don't think he did much after this. Yeah, which he's is a just shame. A weird little guy. He he really is. Let me see. Michael Sachs. Yeah. What has he been in anything else? He was in like. Seven other movies? Oh, he was in Amityville Horror. Oh. He was Jeff. Jeff? Uh, All right. I haven't seen Amityville Horror, even though no. it takes place in, like, oh, Amityville, New York. Oh, okay. <laughs> I remember it taking place, I, I thought I remembered it taking place somewhat close by to where I grew up in New Jersey, but I guess not. <laughs> anyway. Um, yeah, he's not even, like, our narrator or focal character in the book. Our narrator in the book is Vonnegut himself. Yeah, which is another thing I love about the book. It's so good. I love the framing of him, like, talking to people about the war and trying to figure out how to write a war book. Mm Mm-hmm. And that, like, continuing as he is actually writing it. Yeah, I think that, um... On rereads, I enjoy the first chapter of Slaughterhouse Five, but I'll say in the initial read, and when I was reading this uh, to my girlfriend, we do like a little book exchange. Um, uh, it's it's a hard sell of an opening. Yeah, I had like completely forgotten. I could like completely forget about it between reads. Mm-hmm. In in my brain, it starts with. 
Billy Pilgrim has come unstuck in time, even though I know objectively in my brain, I know it starts with the line of here's how things start. Billy Pilgrim has become unstuck in time and it ends like this. But my brain has that alone as the first chapter. Yeah. And I mean, in a lot of ways, it is the first chapter and the chapter one is like a prologue. Yeah. Um, What's interesting is that there's a a graphic novel adaptation of this as well that was written by Ryan North, um, and it it retains this opening, which I think is interesting. I could see that working really well for a graphic novel as well. Mm -hmm. The graphic novel is fantastic. It is, like, I, I think it is rare, if not impossible, to feel like you are reading a book again for the first time. And reading that graphic novel made me feel like I was reading Slaughterhouse-Five again for the first time. I gotta add it to my list. Yep. What were we talking about? Oh, yeah. The, uh, the framing <laughs> device. Yeah. And then just, like, the fact that it it really makes Billy Pilgrim a character throughout. Just, like, a guy for Vonnegut to move around where he wants to be at any given mm-hmm. moment. But he's got... A lot. He's got more spunk in the movie. Yeah, um, and I mean, he kind of has to because nobody wants to watch a character that's just being kicked from place to place. Exactly. Something that works as a literary device in a novel is not going to keep attention the same way on the screen. You need more interpersonal relationships and interactions on a screen, or else people are going to lose interest. Especially because you don't have that narrator driving. And I think like one of the best things that comes out of Billy having more interactions and building more of a character is that we learn more about Edgar Derby as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we do. We learn a lot about Derby. Yeah, and we get to actually see, like, why he is this nice dude and why people like him and why it is such a thing that sticks with everyone when he gets executed. Yeah. The... I thought it was also an appropriate change to change uh, the object he stole from a teapot to a dresden figurine agreed go on partly because it it like ropes it back into the setting specifically and because it feels like there's more motivation behind it yeah in the book it's one of those things where you don't really know why he did it and it's hard Mm -hmm. to sort of like match that with what you've learned about him as a person yeah but like the movie gives it clear and straight. This is the figurine that he and his wife had that broke at home. And he's found one that he can replace it with when he yeah. gets back home to his wife. He won't, but... And so it goes. <laughs> so it goes. It's... I I think that works better in a lot of ways. I, I kind of understand the sentiment of, like, we don't we don't and will never know why he did this mm-hmm. um but i don't know his execution is also a lot more like harsh and immediate in the movie than it is in the book yeah cuz in the book he he's like uh he's shot up with like morphine beforehand and actually like tied to a stake with a with a firing squad mhm and he gets a in, trial beforehand yeah Whereas in the movie, they just, like, yank him off of the, the cleanup crew and shoot him unceremoniously against the wall. Mm-hmm. Which yeah. works for for the language of film. 
but yeah, also definitely. I feel like there's something missing from it. Yeah. It's... I think part of the difference is it's not built up in the same way in the film. Yeah, because you don't have the narration. Yeah, you don't have the narration, and it's only mentioned... Like, once, I think, in the film. Before yeah, maybe, is maybe twice. His wife. Yeah, you hear his wife at their anniversary party go, oh, what was the name of uh, that officer that got shot? Yeah. What did he steal? And then you hear his mom when he's in the the psych ward go, oh, well, you know, they shot his best friend in the war. Yeah. And that's all we really get. We don't get this constant reminder that this is building up to this moment. Because in the book, you get that, and then it is fairly anticlimactic when you see the actual moment that it happens. It's like yeah. one paragraph, so it goes. And that just kind of hammers home the vibe of, like, talking about this should be this big climax versus the don't write another war book that glorifies war. Mm -hmm. So making it just like this small thing and this small fact and keep moving makes it have more weight. Yeah. Even if it is technically more dramatic when it happens in the movie. Yeah. Yeah, I have to agree. Also, I, I, I want to mention, since we talked about the, the framing device and things, I think that the ending hits really hard when when Vonnegut comes back in and he talks about like how very recently at that point uh, Martin Luther King was assassinated and I think mm -hmm. Bobby Kennedy as well yeah. and about like the the violence that's still happening and I forget what his, what his like final sentiment on it is but just sort of like roping it back into like the modern age is really interesting Yeah, because it does just kind of bring it back right at the start of that final chapter. It even men it mentions his own father as well. Mm, yeah. And I I think the sentiment that like really hangs with it and like shows kind of the lasting effects is that paragraph. The my father died many years ago now of natural causes. So it goes. He was a sweet man. He was a gun nut too. He left me his guns. They rust. Yeah. And then it goes back to Charles Amador. They rust is such a good line. Yeah. The... Fucking love Vonnegut. Yeah. What do you think of the movie's ending? Just to jump ahead there, what do you think of the baby being born and then sudden end? <laughs> I think it's certainly a place you stopped the film. <laughs> it's like, you know, it... it it makes sense in a lot of ways. And I think it, it like really stops on Billy's, you know, unhinged unreality. Mm -hmm. Because like, in a lot of ways, I think that it is reductive to simply interpret everything in uh, on Tralfamdor and all that stuff as PTSD or just uh, like a traumatic brain injury. Um, I think it's sort of like a Calvin and Hobbes thing where Bill Watterson says that, like, both realities are true, that Hobbes is a real tiger and he is a stuffed tiger. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, I think both realities are true. This is, like, an elaborate, uh, metaphor and realization of, of his own PTSD, 
and uh, the brain injury he sustained in a plane accident. And also, he's, he, this is a thing he is experiencing. Do you think the movie wants you to lean more into this is just a thing he's experiencing? No. I think the movie okay. wants you to lean more into uh, Billy is mentally ill. Interesting. I think it leans more into this is what he's experiencing because they cut Kilgore Trout. Mm. Okay. Because I think the little details that they mention from Kilgore Trout's books that Billy reads are what give that back and forth of, oh, did his brain come up with this because there's a similarity to this book he read? Or is this a thing? So I think not having that added detail plays it more concretely in a way that felt a little more discordant to me, especially when you consider that it doesn't really get introduced until the very, very last section of the movie. Mm -hmm. They still do it a little bit with, by like making the, uh, the abduction happen after the wife's death, them having gone to the drive-in of a Montana movie. Mm -hmm. Um, which I thought was great addition of a scene, just really characterized everyone in a very funny way. (laughs) Um, I think that's there to act as sort of that same little moment, but I don't think it does it as well as mentioning Kilgore Trout's books. Yeah, I I have to agree. Hmm. I'm coming around to to what you're saying. (laughs) (laughs) But also I get why they took out Kilgore Trout from the movie, because it's just a whole lot of another thing to bring in and explain. Yeah, it's very superfluous overall. Yeah. Even if it's the kind of thing that makes, like, a nice through line in the book. Yeah, exactly. It just, you know, you gotta cut something. Yeah. You I gotta also cut gotta say, something. Yeah. I also gotta say that um, Billy's relationship to his wife is so different in the movie. Because in the in the book, it really seems like he is apathetic about her, if not, like, kind of loathes her or resents her. In the movie, he really actually does seem to love her. Yeah. Like, um, one thing is that, that, like, that annoying little fatphobic joke where, like, basically every scene we see her in, she's like, oh, I'm gonna lose weight for you, Billy. Yeah. Um... But I have to point out that every time she says that, Billy's like, you know, you don't have to. Yeah. Um, and he seems to enjoy being around her, or at least that's that's what I see. And I I don't know. I think that that is such a, a radically different characterization of their relationship than in the book. And I think that's just another aspect of Billy having to be a more active character. Yeah. Bouncing off of that, I there with Billy being a more active character, there is one other change that I'm like trying to decide how I feel about. And it's Billy seeing his wife as he's getting on the plane and then seeing this like vision of the future mm-hmm. and telling everyone that the plane is going to crash and trying to stop it. Yeah. Whereas in the book, he just accepts, oh, the plane is going to crash. This is fine. This will happen. Yeah, the the dog with the burning house. Yeah, <laughs> this is fine. 
what do you think about that change? Do you think it kind of, do you think it's more Billy being a more active character in this and not having had that Charles Famador experience yet? Or do you think it's more so like missing the point a little of Billy being unstuck in time? I think it misses the point a little bit because, you know, you saying like Billy hasn't had the Tralfamador experience yet. The thing is that he has. <laughs> yeah. But like we as an audience, like to us in the the uh, linear time, he hasn't yet, but he has, and he shouldn't have that urge to be like to to try and stop it because he already knows that it's going to happen regardless. Mm-hmm. Like it's not it's not final destination, you know. Yes. Also, I gotta say that that bit of uh, scenes are shot really interesting and in such a, like an eerie way. It it like kind of freaks me out. Yeah, I didn't like it. <laughs> I was like, mm, this is a different movie now. <laughs> what what else has this director done? I I want to see him make a horror movie. <laughs> I hope he has. What I have an article pulled up with his name, George Roy Hill. That's not how you spell George. Oh, you did Butch Cassidy and Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid. Oh, you did the Sting. Huh. Early Modern Millie. Oh. He's done a lot of stuff. He has. He. he I mean, he had like a twenty-five-year career. It looks like. Yeah. Good for him. Yeah. Wild. <laughs> According to one obituary, few directors achieved such fame and success. Even fewer enjoyed such eminence for such a short period of time. <laughs> kind of backhanded. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I do think that in having to make it linear to appeal to an audience more that's that's watching this and not reading it, I do think that it loses something. Yeah, I think it loses something, and it also doesn't necessarily do enough to bring an audience who hasn't read it in. Yeah. It, it, it's not catering it, uh... to either audience. It's trying to meet in the middle, and you just can't do that with a story like yeah. this. Yeah. The thing is, though, um, I still really like this as an adaptation. I think that this, yeah. it really does capture a lot of the spirit and a lot of the feeling of the book. And I think the feeling is, like, the most important bit of it, you know? Yeah, and I like the way they do the cuts through time. Yes. Um, that actually inspired... And how inspired, they, like, make um... it clearer. Hmm? No, yeah, you first. Go on. They make it clear. Uh, they make it clear that like there he is always in every place because he's like talking to himself the whole time when he's jumping yeah. between time. Yeah. Uh this actually inspired Satoshi Kone for um alive how uh paprika looks and how the scenes flow together. Apparently this oh, cool. was a direct inspiration for that. Nice. Yeah. I'm trying to find I found a film review in the New York Times from when this movie came out. Mm-hmm. 
trying to find. <laughs> Where is it? <laughs> Speed rename this <laughs> review. <laughs> Maybe it wasn't in this review. There was there was something somewhere someone out. I have like three different tabs with different analyses and interviews and like reviews pulled up mm-hmm. and there's one of them somewhere in my horde of tabs <laughs> <laughs> talking about how some of the the decent amount of the movie is relying on you to have read the book i won't disagree with that yeah i think that I think you could probably follow this story okay if you haven't read the book. But I think that if you went and read the book afterwards, you would probably be like, oh, that makes a lot more sense. Yeah, definitely. It is It is one of those stories where I think it's easy to lose track in presenting it to someone else of all the internalized details that you get through the narration and how that doesn't translate quite as well with just a visual. Yeah. I think there's a lot of it that works and like, but I think there it is missing like those little elements where you go back and read and you're like, Oh, this makes more sense. Uh, the comment about the soldiers looking young makes more sense. Mm-hmm. Cause you don't get a lot of that element of like it being the children's crusade. Yeah. As well in the movie. A lot of the the actors look on the older side, at least like in their 20s at least. Yeah, I I get why they had to cast an actor that they could make look older for Billy. Mm -hmm. But I think it it misses something huge at the core of the story by making everyone look like 25. Yeah. Instead of, like if they all looked like that one... German kid soldier that we see in Dresden. Yeah. If they were all his age, it would be so different. It would be. That's a bit that's not in the book that that lends an interesting tone as well. The the uh German kid in Dresden who like you know goes looking for his family afterwards. Yes. Yeah, there there's some good added sections both like in characterizing the people in Billy's life as he grows older, like his wife and his kids, but also showing like other aspects of the war that sort of like, like you see a lot of the German civilians in Dresden as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When they enter Dresden, you get this like long montage of like showing how beautiful Dresden was. Mm -hmm. And it, it like, it's such a good establishing moment for when later you're on, you know, the surface of the moon, as Vonnegut puts it, just all ash and and ash and glass. Yes. Yeah. It, it's a really... They, they use the visual medium extremely well in that moment. Yeah. In that and in having the kid run to check on his family because it reminds you that, like, these are civilians, and it also gives you another panning shot through Jesden, but now it's destroyed. Mm. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I like that the movie was able to, like, 
split focus away from Billy for more scenes. Like we get the whole wild car chase of <laughs> Valencia trying to go see him in the hospital, which is like, it's a little bit out of place. It's a great scene. But it's so good. My notes just say, uh, kind of obsessed with her TBH. Honestly. <laughs> because she's just like, Oh, nope, I'm driving on the wrong side of the highway multiple times. I'm going to crash into like four cars and Jeez. drive all the way to Vermont. R.I.P. Valencia. Yeah, queen. <laughs> but then you also get that slightly more tender scene of like uh, the the daughter and her husband of him breaking the news to her. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. you don't normally get that sort of response and reaction uh, from the people around Billy throughout the book. Yeah. You just get Billy and the facts and what and Vonnegut's input, but you don't get to see the kids reacting to these same things that are happening. Um, the fact that we actually get to see more of like Robert being a troubled kid mm-hmm. and then the way that's sort of handled. Yeah, I always appreciate when a movie expands on what it's given in the book. One one in, one movie in particular that I always think about with that is um I know it's a little off topic, but uh, Barefoot in the Park, uh, an adaptation of a Neil Simon play that uh, it all takes place in like one apartment. But there are moments where, like, people go outside of the apartment and do things, and they come back and they talk about it. But in the movie, they actually, like, they show those scenes. It's extremely Neil Simon. <laughs> yeah, then <laughs> that's Neil Simon in a nutshell. Yes, everyone's in a room, but someone leaves the room and does something and comes back and tells everyone about it. <laughs> yep, that's him. Yeah, yeah, I think it was cool that the movie got to do that. And they they did like a lot of fun. They took those moments to do fun visuals. Yes. As well. They were like, hey, if we get to make up this bit, let's have fun with it. Like the spot montage as well. Like seeing the dog grow up and seeing Billy and his wife like have this life together. I don't know where they got the fire truck. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. I have questions about that. Yeah, <laughs> but otherwise, very fun scene, very fun montage. Yeah. You get to see all these elaborate cakes that Valencia is making. Truly an icon. Yeah. Oh, what was I gonna say? And like what oh, we were what... saying earlier with the the him actually liking his wife, their like mm-hmm. honeymoon scene. Hmm is I think like really emblematic of that in Sweetie because in the book he's talking about like why did I even propose to her but I mean our marriage is fine the whole way through so I guess it's cool whereas like in the movie when she says I thought no one would ever marry me he just Mm -hmm. goes I did (laughs) like I marry you (laughs) like having an unstuck moment of almost like he's processing what time period he's in right now and realizing that this is his honeymoon yeah (laughs) And being excited about it. I like that he's excited about that. Yeah. Yeah. It's... Yeah, you know, speaking of the the women in Billy's life, what do you think of Montana? She's wild. Yeah, wild, wild they... hack indeed. 
Yeah, yeah, well, back indeed. They made her an astrology girly. I kind of like that. <laughs> <laughs> like, I think it, I, it caught me off guard at first because I was like, what's happening? Also, moon child? That's not a sign. But <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I, I think it leans really well into her being so accepting and understanding of Billy being unstuck in time. I think it ties in with that mm-hmm. and makes it easier to believe that she'd just kind of vibe with this. Yeah. It's Yeah, she she gets like a little bit more expansion than she does in the book. In yeah, the book, she's it's more like... of a person. Yeah. And it's like I wonder if she stays missing because she just wants to hang out on Tralfamador and raise their kid. But also yeah, Billy's think... back on Earth. Like, what do you think happened there? Who knows? <laughs> I think I I, I guess. I think that's the implication because Billy sees like something about her missing in the tabloids in the book. Mm-hmm. And he's like, oh, I know where she is, though. She's back on Tralfamador raising the baby. Yeah. Which is wild, but I I kind of like their vibe together. Yeah. I, th- I think it rushes it a little bit. Yeah. I, I like that it takes more time in the book and that it is actively like everything was chill until Montana was like, all right, it's been long enough. I'm into you. Yeah. Um, but I think it's nice. I think it's a nice contrast of him having someone who is more like-minded. Yeah. As well. And, like, shares his interests. The fact that she also likes Spot, whereas his wife never really liked the dog. Mm-hmm. Um, I like that he gets to have Spot <laughs> in the human zoo. Uh, how do you feel about the fact that they never say that they're in a zoo? Did you notice that? Did you notice did that they never notice. explain where they are? Nope. <laughs> they did just they put even... them there and never say anything about it and just oh. hope you put it together. Interesting. I will also say I believe that they leave them clothed, which, like, yes. you know, easier easier to film for censorship or whatever. Mm-hmm. But they at the same time... don't leave Montana clothed. Almost. Yeah, it's... There is definitely a lot missing in the Tralfamador scenes. I wonder if a bunch got cut, to be honest. Ooh, yeah, I wonder. Because I feel if I were directing this movie, I would, you know, much like everything else, weave the Tralfamador scenes in and out. Yeah. Yeah, because there's a lot more of Tralfamador in the book. Yeah. And, like, it it feels so brushed over mm-hmm. until the end. Like, you get that little bit at the beginning when he's typing on the typewriter. Um and also him typing that he has come unstuck in time. But it almost implies that the Tralfamadorians unstuck him in time, even though he's always been like that. Yeah. It's... It is odd. It... it now that we're talking about this angle, yeah, you definitely need to, <laughs> to, to read the book or something to, get, to uh, fully get these parts. 
Yeah. Because I, I also... think there's a lot that's interesting about Tralfamador. We just don't get enough of it. Yeah. I also think that um, the cutting the serenity prayer that they keep coming back to in the book also mm-hmm. kind of loses a theme, but also that theme ties into Tralfamador so heavily. Like, yeah. you know, grant me grant me the uh, serenity to... The will to change the things I can, this, the serenity to... Whatever. Let me find it. It's written in between Montana's tits, so it should yeah. be an easy page to find. Which one get helpfully... Hope, yeah, helpfully draws. Beautiful. Yeah, I like that there's just, like, two drawings in this book. <laughs> yeah. I love when a page in a book is just a drawing. Jeez, boy, can you stop chewing on my skirt? Have you ever Thank read you. Breakfast of Champions? I have not. That one, there, there is, like, 50 drawings in that book. <gasps> Exciting. Yeah. I like his little doodles. I love his yeah. little author photo. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. It's the God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom always to tell the difference. Yeah. And the... I mean, the thing about Billy is that despite everything... He skips step one and only does step two. <laughs> oh, no, sorry. He he stops at step one. Just don't change anything. Just accept that you can't change anything. Yeah. And... Well, it's almost like... Yeah, I guess he doesn't really... Because he realizes that he can't really change anything except the way he responds to things. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, I think that cutting Tralfamador along with that, or cutting those elements of Tralfamador, makes a lot of sense together. Because like, that's sort of the thing that he learns from the Tralfamadorians. Mm-hmm. Um, even though they do it so much better than he does. Where he talks about how like, oh, there, your your planet is so peaceful. We have such horrible wars on Earth, and the all the Tralfamadorians there are like, yeah, we actually have a lot of wars like as bad or worse than yours, but like we just we just don't look over there. Today's nice, right? Yeah, like let's just not think about that. Yeah, it's it's like mindfulness in a lot of ways. Yeah. I, thinking about, like, that way of thinking, do you think, well, you can answer this for the book and for the movie or mm-hmm. both or whichever you're feeling, do you think it is effective as an anti-war story? Yes. I I think that... It does an appropriate job of showing the horrors of war. Um, And I think there's something to be said about the fact that um, Billy's son joins the, the Marines as a Green Beret in the Vietnam War. Like, just continuing the cycle of, of, children having to go and commit violence for their country um and i think just how fucked up billy is from his experience 
is, I don't know, speaks a, it speaks a lot for itself. The movie, I think, through showing, through being able to, like, show the horrors of, of the bombing um, and the aftermath and stuff, I think that it does a pretty good job as well. I think that... I think that there's always going to be an element when you're showing a story about war that to a degree is always going to glorify war even even if the the message is completely against it because of i think it's hard not to show i'm thinking movies specifically but i i think it's hard to show war stuff in movies and make it seem like only horrific and only awful and not at all like a little bit cool like look at them go yeah you know um i think that this movie does a pretty good job of that and and the book too partly because billy is so absolutely pathetic his entire crew is is pathetic and then they immediately get captured and essentially removed from the war until the war finds them Mm -hmm. um and the war it's in in that case becomes almost like a force of god which i i don't think they spend enough time in the movie with not rosewater who's the who's the professor who's in the hospital uh, Derby? No, no, um... Oh, um... BC, his what's his face? <laughs> yeah, him. The the guy with the, the very young wife. Yeah, who's trying to make it all, like, here's what happened, here's what the Americans did, this is the history of our Air Force. Mm-hmm. While Billy's just over there, like, I was there. Yeah. It was bad. <laughs> The, yeah, I think they could have spent more time with him, and especially, like, the way he treats Billy in the book is just so much worse than the interactions he has. Yeah, he, he fucking movie. berates Billy constantly, belittles him. Yeah, but I do think the one line that works in the movie is him going, oh, well, then write your own damn book. Yeah. <laughs> because it doesn't fit what this picture he is painting of the American military. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's... Possibly something to be said about that with uh, Holocaust denier David mm-hmm. whatever who wrote that that Dresden book. Yep. But I'm not sure that that's intentional. Yeah. It happens. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's interesting the way it like Billy is like. I'm trying to figure out the right words for it because it's not like he's. A comic relief. He's he's like a tragically comic. Yeah. Like Pagliacci. Yeah. He's the Pagliacci of Vonnegut's world. I could. Um, I could see Slaughterhouse Five being being uh, categorized as a tragic comedy. Yeah. Because there is there is a lot of humor to it, and I like. There's a lot of absurdism as well, mm-hmm. and I think the the book leans even more heavily into the more absurd aspects that kind of both highlight and contrast against 
the horrors of war that he's trying to point out. Yeah. In a way that we don't see as much in the movie because we don't have Roland Weary's like self monologue about the three musketeers and trying to be the hottest shit ever. We barely get any of Roland Weary before he dies. Most of it goes to Paul Lazaro and they put them in the same like group with Billy from yeah. the start. So we don't get the three musketeers and the scouts going off and Roland yeah. being stuck with Billy. We don't get to see Roland Weary be as pathetic as Billy in his own way. Yeah, and I, f- I feel like we lose a lot from that because, yeah, we get to see Lazaro be terrible and kind of get his ass handed to him as a result, but it's an, it, there's fewer parallels, I feel like, between Lazaro and Weary in the way mm-hmm. they respond to treatment and the ways they are treated. Yeah, and I think having Lazaro be around to witness this and not just like hearing Roland Weary every 10 minutes being like Billy Pilgrim fucking killed me. Um, Mm -hmm. I think there's something lost in that as well in the idea that Lazaro is just the type of person who wants to commit violence and find any excuse to rather than like Lazaro has reason to believe that Billy actually killed Roland because that's who he knew. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I would have loved to see more of that because that's also just like a huge chunk of the early section of the book is them walking through the snow and trying not to die, the four of them. Mm. Yeah. And we only get Billy walking through the snow for a little bit before getting found by them and then everyone getting captured. I like those shots in the movie. They are good shots. Yeah. Um, it really it really sets an interesting tone at the beginning. But yeah, I I think that, I mean, I think in a lot of ways they have to cut a lot of that because they've made Billy an active character. Because yeah. a lot of what Billy does when they're wandering around is just, is just occasionally be like, you guys should just leave me here. Yeah. Yeah. I'd gotten confused at first when they first had that moment. I was like, did they make Lazaro and Weary the same person? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, which obviously isn't like an issue you'll have if you haven't read the book, but yeah, that's true. And and there are a couple of things where reading the book makes it actively a little more confusing. Mm-hmm. Or like you don't quite understand Weary getting so upset and assuming that the officer ditched him. Yeah. The same way that you do in the book, but because you don't have that interiority, but it's also not been built up as much. Um, yeah yeah it's they're understandable changes but they're things that I think lessen the message that it's trying to get across a little bit yeah or like not having all of the absurdities as well like Billy sure Billy still has his coat that's too small and from a civilian but I wanted the bright blue toga to go with the sparkly boots I wanted to see a clip of their production of Cinderella. Right? I was so disappointed. I was so upset that they did not do the Cinderella scene. I wanted to see Billy laugh hysterically and get sent to the infirmary because they don't know what's wrong with him. (laughs) Honestly, Mood. (laughs) It's, yeah, 
I do wish they had injected a little bit more humor, but I think that... I don't know how much they could have without, like, pushing it into, like, direct comedy or, like, forcing it too hard. Yeah. Because I guess in... In this movie, it might feel out of place to have a... To have the production of Cinderella. It would feel like maybe a little bit of a non sequitur. Yeah. Yeah. A man can dream. (laughs) Yeah, a man can dream. The thing is, there's just so much that happens in this book. There's no way you can't cut some of it. So the fact that they got as much as they did in there. Mm -hmm. They still kept the non-linearity. They even kept like a lot of interesting little small scenes like um, the sink or swim bit at the YMCA. Yeah. Yeah, they kept the sink or swim bit. They kept, like, just the offhand, the the mention of, like, oh, we're so well set at this camp because the Red Cross has been sending us 500 instead of 50. Yeah. Um, And I liked, I think they characterized Billy really well by having him ask, well, shouldn't you tell someone? Yeah. <laughs> and it also characterized, like, how everyone is still fending for themselves. Yeah. In a pretty selfish way by going, well, no. Yeah. I think I, I was impressed that they kept uh, Billy's assassination in there. Really? Yeah, because I... They did keep it in there, right? I'm not misremembering. Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah, they did keep it um, in. Um, in fact, they even, like, made it more compact, so it wasn't even, like, that night. It was as he was finishing his speech. Yeah. I I think it's as he's finishing his speech in the book, too. Am I wrong? I might be wrong. Because that's the way it is in the graphic novel, too. Okay, then maybe it is as he's finishing his speech. I don't know why I'm looking through the book as though I'll know where this happens. Nothing happens <laughs> Not <regardless>. in order. <laughs> just reread the book casually right now. It's fine. <laughs> no, you're probably right. Would... I'm probably misremembering that. Either way, I think it would be an easy thing to cut. And... I think the idea of, like, I think that in, how, how do I phrase this? I, I think that they cut things that were more relevant to the story than Billy being assassinated at the end of his life. Or at the end of his theoretical life. Yeah. Yeah, I could see that. I guess it's an extra moment of characterization for Paul, for Paul Lazaro in the movie. But, you know, I, I was happy they kept it in. I was just, like, surprised. Yeah, because it's the kind of thing where he could have just, like, mentioned it. But I do also think it contributes to, like, the the more concretely, like, oh, yeah, like... This isn't just something existing in his head. He's been to the future and this is how he dies. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do think it's just it, whether it is as relevant as a scene to keep I think it was shot really well I like how they viewed the future and I think yeah. I I think it keeps in one of the like things that Vonnegut's trying to get across with him say, saying like hey I'm going to die tonight and the crowd responds and he goes if you're upset about that you haven't been listening to what I'm saying yeah 
and then doing the hello farewell hello farewell yeah it uh very well done scene yeah i also like that in the movie uh paul lazaro takes the job yeah because i think in the book it's he hires somebody to do it he says he's gonna hire somebody to do it that's like his normal threat but i think maybe in the movie it or maybe in the book it actually was paul lazaro just because they make a point to be like hey he lives here (laughs) (laughs) this is his town and he's gunning for me but i wish there was i wish i could just search yeah (laughs) but i cannot oh Uh, print media yeah well i will i will uh but yeah, I think it's a really interesting scene, and I, I, I really like that line, the, you haven't been listening if you're upset. Yeah. I'm trying to think what else. A lot of the other changes were just like, I feel like we've talked about a lot of the bigger changes. Mm-hmm. Some of the smaller ones, some of the smaller ones that I liked were them having like Edgar Derby read his letters aloud. And be like, yeah. hey, I'm sending this back to my wife. So we got that interiority and that information that we would have got about Edgar Derby. But also everyone else has that information now, too. Yeah. But how do you feel about the fact that uh, Derby is the one who finds uh, Billy's diamond and not Billy? I think it's a, a strange choice considering how active they've made Billy as a character that he does, he's not the one to find it. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, it feels weird. <laughs> I it guess... It feels almost like they're trying to characterize Derby as being someone to, like, look for things and, like, set up him just, like, grabbing stuff without thinking it when he... Because... Maybe. He, he does just, like, show the officers the figurine he found. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But also, I feel like it makes more sense. It makes it a weirder thing for Billy to give his wife as a gift. That's for yeah. sure. Because, you know, Edgar is the one who found it. Mm-hmm. So it makes sense that they made it the anniversary ring and not the engagement ring in the movie. Yeah. Because that's a that's a weird thing to give your wife as an engagement present. Hey, do you know this diamond that my friend who died found? Do you want to get married in it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That uh, that would probably be pretty awkward. She'd still say yes. Oh yeah, hundred percent. Absolutely. She's crazy about him. Yeah, <laughs> she drove to Vermont with no muffler. <laughs> that car was trashed. <laughs> Man. Such a fun scene. Rip to Valencia, you would have loved Demolition Derby. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, yeah. Uh, was there anything else you had notes on that you wanted to talk about? I don't think so, no. They'd... Sweet. Yeah. Well, then that brings us to our wrap-up time. Mm. Uh, I have a few questions for you uh first of which which i didn't prime you for this one haha surprise if you could make like one change to this movie adaptation what would it be i hmm 
Trelphomador. Give me more Trelphomador. And show me Trelphomadorians, you cowards. Yeah, give us the little aliens with their little grabby hands. I yeah. want to see their little eyeball. <laughs> I need their plunder bodies. I need <laughs> yes. to see it. Um, give me the claymation Trelphomadorians. That's what I was expecting, and I felt kind of robbed that there weren't any. <laughs> That was the coward's method of Tralfamador. Exactly. Where's Where's uh, Harryhausen when you need him? Give Give me a funky little alien. Yeah. And then, so do you think? How faithful do you think this adaptation was? I think it's fairly faithful. I think that I think that Bonnie is right. That it really does capture the spirit and the feeling of the book, um, even if it doesn't necessarily get every event or even if it like misses out on some points because of how it is and has to be in some regards I think that it still really hits to be honest yeah it is fairly faithful on like a on a scale of one to ten what would you give it I'd give it like an eight one day I am going to, like, make a graph comparing. <laughs> but we'll see. <laughs> One day. Um, and then, was it a good movie? Yeah. Yeah, I really like this one. I think on Letterboxd I gave this, like, five stars. Nice. Let me see. What would you give it? One to ten. Uh, One to ten? I'd give it, like, a nine. It's, it's good. It's not the best movie I've ever seen, but I really like it. I think there were parts that were really good and parts where I was like, what, buddy? <laughs> um, and then, do, do you think it's a good adaptation? Do you think it uses the medium well and adapts things well? Yes. I, I think that this movie uses the medium of film quite well. I think the the match cuts to for showing the shift in time, I think its use of uh its use of makeup and stuff on the actors looks pretty good like we talked about with with uh entering dresden and um just being able to visually see the the destruction overall i think that it's really a well-made movie it is yeah i think it you're right it uses it uses the camera to its advantage to get things across Mm -hmm. all right well that seems to wrap things up for us oak thank you for being on the podcast is there anything you'd like to plug your twitter any of the shows you work on uh yeah um when is this coming out for the record uh the 15th 15th okay okay yeah um so you can find me on twitter at oak alexandrite o-a-k-a-l-e-x-a-n-d-r-i-t-e I made it real easy for all of you. I post on there about the Beatles video that I've been working on for like eight months uh, about all the Beatles films and a bunch of documentaries and tangentially related films. I watched uh, 20 films for this project. I'm, I'm, yeah, uh, including Get Back, the eight-hour Peter Jackson documentary. I'm trying to write a section on that right now. It's, it's going, I... I'm I've just resigned to the fact that I'm gonna have to watch it again. <laughs> I I gotta send my dad the link to this video when you're done. 
son. He has watched the documentary twice now, I think. <laughs> it's a really good documentary. Um, but yeah, uh, I'm working on that. That will be done at some point this year, I, I hope. Um, and... Uh, I mean, you can find that on our YouTube channel, uh, The Alexandrite System. I think it's youtube.com slash C slash We Are Alexandra. Uh, W-E-A-R-E-A-L-E-X-A-N-D-R-A. And listen to uh, the podcast I occasionally host and always edit, uh, The Three Little Words Podcast, um, where Claudia and Nicole read and rank romance novels on steaminess, dreaminess, and meaniness. Think. That is it. Sweet. Yeah, y'all should definitely check out uh, Three Little Words because uh, I think tomorrow, the ep- so before this episode comes out, tomorrow in recording time, uh, yeah. the show swap that Dead Teen House Party, the other show that I'm on, did with <laughs> Three Little Words, is about to come out on their feed as well. <laughs> I'm excited. I started listening to that and I'm having fun. <laughs> it's a blast. As always i've been emma you can find me on twitter at emmetsca you can find the podcast at unselect pod we are a part of the moonshot podcast network and the music for this show was composed by jake loringer you can find more of his stuff at amaranthine.bandcamp.com and as always let us make your movie just do it let us add more aliens let us put claymation in there please let me let me see an alien great hopes for this year's episode of I'll Be Pod for Castmas, though not great expectations, which might, like the cherry orchard, have to wait for another year. This Christmas in July, we'll be discussing Jane Austen's persuasion alongside what Jane Austen might call the natural sequel of an unnatural beginning. That is, the Netflix Christmas special, The Princess Switch 2, Switched Again! I'm Juliet. And I'm Catherine. And we're I'll Be Pod for Castmas, a seasonal podcast where we overanalyze Christmas pop songs and movies. Put them into conversation with some unlikely pieces of literature. Don't be a cringe! Join us on I'll Be Pod for Castmas on the Moonshot Podcast Network.